Well, good morning and welcome to Stone Creek. If you're excited to be in church today, let me hear you say yes. I believe you, like over half of you, I believe you, but um, I'm excited that you're all here, but I'm not going to lie. There's one person that I'm just a little bit more excited that they're here today. This is a person, if you've ever wondered, like, how do things run so well at Stone Creek? I know you're thinking that every single day. Um, if you've ever thought to yourself, like, how do birthdays here at Stone Creek get remembered? How do people feel encouraged? And maybe... Maybe most importantly to you, how do sermons always end on time? Ladies and gentlemen, that's because of the work of a very special person. And today is her 50th birthday. And so I want you to go crazy and show some love for Miss Jane Knopf. I love it. She loves attention. She's drink. No, she doesn't. She's drinking this in. Well, if I haven't met you, my name is Aaron Bennett, and I love emphasizing that last name because this is a great week to be a Bennett from Georgia. Can I get an amen? Yes. Some of you aren't clapping. I'm taking note of that. I'm watching you. God's watching you. Uh, Stetson Bennett is um, a legend, um, maybe just because he's been around so long. Um, some people, you know, they get on his case because he's a little bit older of a quarterback, but that doesn't bother me because he and I are exactly the same age. We're both 50 years old. I'm just kidding. Um, he's, a, he's older. Uh, that's not true, but here's what is true. As college freshmen, this is true. Stetson and I were offered the exact same college football scholarship from UGA, zero. So there we go. We have a lot in common. But I heard this story, and uh, I had to double check it. My wife told me about it, that like the week after winning this great, incredible victory, this national championship, Stetson Bennett was working a cash register at the restaurant Raising Cane's selling chicken. Did you guys hear that story? And so it just reminded me that you can go from this amazing moment, this celebration, the kind of moment that we are all living for, and then pretty soon it's back to real life. It's back to life as usual. And the truth of the matter is, that's kind of what makes up most of our days, isn't it? It's the selling chicken and raising canes and raising kids and trying to raise your salary and trying to raise your social profile. The truth of the matter is, we spend a lot more of our time living that. And that's what we're talking about today, is how do we live a real life? a real life. And what does Jesus have to say about the life that he has offered us? In this series, we're challenging ourselves to be real. On the count of three, just say it. It's fun to say. One, two, three. I'm trying to be real. I'm trying to preach the real gospel up here. So yeah, we want to be real. And what we're challenging ourselves to think about is maybe the key to being real is taking an unfiltered look at our lives at our marriages, at our relationships, and at love. And today, we are going to take an unfiltered look at our lives. Have you ever had a filtered view of something? Uh, I'm one of those people with high expectations. Uh, have you ever had that filtered view of what your vacation was going to be like? You finally got that trip to Disney World. You're headed in the minivan. You're making your way over the state line. You're in Florida, and it's inevitable. Somebody's throwing up in the car. Amen? Have you been there? Some of you are laughing because you know it's true. Um, yeah, I think that I've had definitely some areas of my life with a filtered view. I, I feel like I gave my life to ministry at the age of 40. 
14. And, and at the time, I just had rose-colored glasses of what this experience would be like. I would just walk into a room. People would start crying and repenting, giving their lives to Jesus. I would walk into my church office, and everybody would already be there singing worship, raising their hands. And I got my first real ministry job at the age of 24. And you know what it was made up of? It was made up of a lot of middle schoolers and ministry days. And both of them smelled weird. <laughs> middle schoolers. That was the first area where I really got to invest my life, which was a lot of fun. And a ministry day is something that happened every single week. I was serving at a larger church in the Lake Lanier area, so about 40 minutes from here, and uh, we were assigned as pastors on call to go out and do whatever work was needed in the community of a ministry nature that day, and you just never knew where the day was going to carry you. You get an email first thing in the morning, and it would have a list of addresses and just maybe a little description of what you're doing. So it would say funeral visit, and so you drive an hour, half away. I remember one funeral. I was getting there kind of late, and I was sitting there listening, and I'm listening to them talk about this person who I'd never really met anyway, and something didn't sound right, and I checked the list. I was in the wrong funeral home. Do you know how awkward it is to walk out of a funeral after it started? It's not cool. Um, I remember another time. This is a moment I'll never forget. I got an email address, I mean, I got an email to go to an address to a neighborhood that I was actually kind of excited to visit. I mean, don't get me wrong. I love every ministry visit. I love praying for people. I feel like Jesus, that's exactly the kind of stuff that he would do. That's exactly the kind of stuff he did when he was here. And I got this address, and it was for a neighborhood that I've heard of. It was a really exclusive neighborhood that I'd never actually been in. It was called Chateau Alain. And it was one of the most exclusive places in our area. I mean, if you made it to Chateau Alain, I mean, in my mind, at 24 years old, that was real life. Like, you did it. You, you made the money. You achieved the goal. You got the promotion. And so I was like, man, I'm going to be somebody cool today. Let's go. So I get in the car. I make my way past the guard shack. I'm like, oh, yes, it's my ministry day. Just let me through. And I make my way to the home, and I pull up, and sure enough, it's this mansion. I'm just thinking to myself, like, wow, like, who lives here? Because this is the destination we're all aiming for. And I, I knock on the door, and the wife lets me in, and she's like, yes, thank you so much for coming. My husband is just in the bedroom. You can go in right now, and you can pray for him. And so I was like, do you want to bring him out to the living room? Because I, I I'm not used to going to people's bedrooms. She's like, no, go back. It'll be fine. He's asleep. So I make my way through the marble lobby. I'm looking at the finishes all around me thinking, is this heaven? And I walk into his bedroom, and the man is in one of those home hospital beds. He's completely peaceful. It was the first time I'd done something like this, and I just remember thinking, man, I went to seminary. I don't remember this class. Uh, they, they taught me how to, to look at Greek. They didn't tell me what to do in a moment like this, and and so I just had to do that moment where I had to pray to real prayer. You know, it wasn't like a really spiritual sounding prayer. It was like, God, help me. I don't know what to do. And just since the spirit of God gave me a sense of peace to walk over, it was an older man. And I just, for whatever reason, felt inclined to grab his hand. And he didn't really squeeze back or anything. He was just sleeping. And I just said, well, I'm here to pray. I'm going to pray. And it wasn't a, a magical sounding prayer. It wasn't any one that I would ever remember. It was simple, really. God, I just pray for your peace. I pray for your presence. In the name of Jesus, amen. And I'll never forget when I said amen, the gentleman laying there said something like this. And 
I placed his hand down, and I walked out, kind of taken by the moment. And I said goodbye to the wife, and I went and sat back down in my car, and I was still just processing what happened. Like, did I, did I do that right? But deep down, I had this sense of what had really happened in the room. And about two minutes later, I got an email on my phone that the wife had called the church immediately after I left to let them know that Justin, her husband, had passed away. And that was a first for me. And it hit me. I'm looking at this place that driving up, I consider to be a final destination. Like this is the fruit of everything someone could work for. This is the vision of what real life looks like. And in an instant, the man with that bank account, the man with that marble foyer, the man with that achievement found out what we will all find out. What happens next? And today, we're going to take an unfiltered look at life by taking a look at our lives in view of eternity. I remember coming home and telling my friends that story and they're like, yo, that's so shocking. I can't believe that. And, and after a while, I just remember we were talking to each other thinking this should be the least shocking thing because the most certain thing about this life is that one day it will come to an end. Most of us don't spend a lot of time thinking about that, right? Like, it'd be kind of weird. In fact, CBS News said that about 85% of us never think consciously about what happens next. And yet, it will impact every single one of us. And maybe the greatest gift someone could give you today is the chance to consider how you can live this moment in light of eternity. What priorities does it change? What desires does it bring? And how will we walk away different? You know, we spend a lot of time and money, to be honest, to avoid thinking about what comes next, to avoid the pain that life can offer, to avoid the sense that we can get older and life can one day come to a close. My question is, is that really how we want to spend these days? avoiding this inevitability? Is that really how we want to live? And is that really what God wants for us? Today, we're going to take a look at the words of someone who conquered history. We're going to take a look at one of the most famous sermons of one of the most famous men to walk planet Earth. In fact, it's an individual who said he doesn't just know about life. We're going to read the words of someone who made a bold, audacious claim that changed the world by claiming that he himself is the source of life. Today, we're going to hear the words of Jesus. We're going to take a look at a piece of a sermon that he preached in the book of Matthew chapter 6. Matthew chapter 6. If you have a copy of the scriptures, I invite you to turn there with me. And if not, then you can follow along on the screens. And if you would like a copy of God's word, we would love to give you one before you leave today. I want you to remember who is speaking these words. You know, when you come to church, we kind of go on autopilot if you're anything like me. And sometimes we forget who is really speaking here. The book of John chapter one, I was just reading this with my daughter Valentine in her study Bible says that in the beginning, Jesus was with God in the beginning. 
The one who's standing there on the side of a seaside town in Capernaum, preaching a message known as the Sermon on the Mount, this is the same one that John says nothing that was created was created without him, that everything we know, feel, and see, and touch was created through him. The one standing here delivering God's vision of real life is the keeper of the cosmos himself. And not only did he come to teach, he came to turn this world upside down. I don't know about you, but as I look around this world, I can see a few things that need to be turned upside down. And maybe as I look into my own life today, I see a few things that need to be turned upside down. And today, Jesus is going to cast a vision for real life that just might turn everything upside down. Would you read with me in Matthew chapter 6, beginning in verse 25? The scripture says this, Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life. If I stop the sermon there, we can be blessed. But easy for him to say, hey, Jesus, you're the one who knows what's going to happen next. How can you tell me not to be anxious? I don't know what you know. Do not be anxious about your life. That's easy for you to say. You're the one who conquered the grave. I still don't know when my days will end. Don't be anxious about your life. What you will eat or what you will drink. Don't be anxious about your body, what you put on. By the way, you guys all look great today, but Jesus says, don't worry about it. Because look, is life not more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. Remember, he's standing in the seaside town. Jesus was a master appointed to his environment to teach eternal truths. Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. He's speaking to people in an agriculture region. The way they lived, the way they ate, the way they traded, the way they made money was that they could grow food, that they could sow seed, that they could reap harvest. It's all they thought about. When they had a rainy day, they were thinking about how their crops would be watered. As the sun came scorching down, they worried if they would have enough to last through the winter. These were people who were constantly moved by their natural environment. And Jesus is saying, look at the birds. They don't worry about any of that. And yet they're okay. And then Jesus makes a bold statement that we'll return to in a moment. He says, are you not more valuable than them? Verse 27. Jesus says, and by which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to the span of his life? How many people do you know who are always running from their own mortality I want another experience. I want to stop the aging process. I want to look younger. I want to look better. I want to have more fun. I want to get everything I can get out of this life. And Jesus says, you can try. You can try. You spend all that time, and what can you actually add? And why are you anxious about your clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. And we hear about Solomon. We expect to hear about Solomon. We're in church. Maybe you're new to church or new to faith and, and you don't expect to hear about Solomon. Can I tell you what the Jews heard who are listening to this message, what they thought when Jesus said this? 
He says, I want you to take your vision of what God wants for you, just like making it through, and I want you to expand it. And I want you to compare God's provision for you to the richest king in your history. I want you to see what God wants for you. He said, Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these, but... If God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown in the oven, will he not much more clothe you? I think most of us, if we knew the truth of what Jesus is teaching, would find that some of us have money problems, but most of us don't have money problems. But some of us, some of us, we have life problems, but they're bigger than life problems. Here's what Jesus says. Oh, you of little faith. He says if you're worried about all of these things, you have faith problems. And if you have faith problems, it's because you have a vision problem. You've never truly seen who God really is, what God can really do, and what God really wants for you. This is the real life of Jesus. Verse 31, he says, Therefore, Because by this point, if I'm listening, I'm starting to feel guilty. Okay, Jesus, I get it. You've talked about clothes four times. That's a weird take. You're the Messiah. You're healing people. You just cured leprosy. Now you're talking about our outfits. Okay, yes. Therefore, do not be anxious saying, what shall we eat or what shall we drink or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after these things and your heavenly father knows that you need them all. At this moment, I'm like, Jesus, boil it down. You told us what not to do. Will you please show us the future? Show us a hope. Here it is. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And all of these things will be added to you. Those few words that we just read could redefine your life. Those few words that we just read have been redefining real lives for centuries. And I just wonder what God could do today in a room like this with people like us. Why don't we pray and invite him in? Would you bow your heads with me? Jesus, we thank you for who you are. Thank you for this teaching. Thank you for this moment. Thank you for your overwhelming, audacious unstoppable love for your people. It's in the name of Jesus we pray. And God's people said, amen. Don't you like when the Bible gets practical? In this verse alone, we see Jesus talks about anxiety four times. A couple of months ago, we did a series on anxiety, a message, and we had so much response from it that we did a part two to that message. And here's what it taught me, that real people with nice clothes and real lives and nice social media presence and good kids and people with lives that have checked off the boxes still can walk into a place like this gripped with anxiety. And I just want you to know if you've ever felt that way, Jesus isn't ignoring you. I think one of the worst parts about anxiety is when you feel like you're walking through it alone. I'm the only one who feels this way. I'm the only one who's dealing with this. Jesus just assumes it's applying to everybody. 
Jesus is talking about anxiety four times, what we eat and drink four times. You're like, why is he talking about that so much? Because you know how many times I've preached to a group of people like this, and I'm like, they're not thinking about what I'm talking about. They're thinking about what's for lunch. Jesus felt the same thing. Don't worry about what you're going to eat and drink. He talked about what you're going to wear four times, and he talked about the length of life. I'm a pastor, I'm a creative pastor here, and I love it, and um, the reason I wanted this job specifically to minister to people online who've yet to find a church or to meet Jesus is because I have a background in digital marketing, and I love to study the subject of influence. One of my favorite podcasts is called Hidden Brain. I love reading about how the mind works and why people do what they want to do, and I can sum it up for you. You know what people do? People will do not what they should do. People will do what they want to do. If you want to know what your kids are going to do, they're going to do whatever they want to do. The key to life is helping them to want the right things. I was reading one marketer recently, and he's one of those like really prideful marketers with lots of swagger. He says he can convince you to do anything because he thinks he knows eight things about you to be true. And if he can hit a trigger point on any of these desires deep in your heart, then he can motivate you towards an action. So let's see if we can prove him wrong. See if any of these apply to you. Number eight, he says you're looking for social approval. Like if your neighbor gets a jet ski, you start to think, I want a jet ski. Like if your friend goes on a cool vacation, posts pictures. You're like, I want to go on that cool vacation. We're made of social creatures. Number seven, he says that we're looking for safety for the people that we love. That's why we buy security systems and alarms for our car. It's why we lock up at night. That's why we want to live in good neighborhoods. It's because we crave safety, because we know this is a world that can be anything but safe. The sixth thing he says that you want is to win in the eyes of others. That's why it feels good when your kid gets the A on the spelling test. That's not the one that you're going to keep private. Oh, anybody uh, take the spelling test this week? Oh, that's weird. We got an A. I don't know. I don't know if you did, but, uh, um, you know, it's, it's cool if you didn't, but if you did. Um, we love to talk about the wins in our life. Number five, we just, we want comfortable living conditions. It's why we love home goods. Can anybody testify to that today? Nobody? Not going to admit it in church? We're getting some applause. Someone wants risky to be real. <laughs> the fourth, we want sexual companionship. It's why advertisers use this all the time. But even beyond that, it's not just sexual companionship. We want to be desired. We want to be wanted. We want to be loved. We want to feel attractive. Number three, we want freedom from pain, danger, and fear. If I had a bundle today, like a call this 1-800 number right now. I'll double your offer, throw in an LED light. Here's my offer, a lifetime value of complete freedom from pain, danger, and fear. What would you trade? The second thing, this is so funny that Jesus talked about it four times. This marketer says one of the most powerful urges that can get you to spend money is enjoyment of food and beverages. At the end of the day, we just want to eat and drink something tasty. Amen? That's why um, Bennett shouldn't have been working at Raising Cane's. He should have been at Chick-fil-A. Amen? Come on. Come on. And the last one, the one that motivates so much of our behavior is that we want a longer life. Here's what Jesus knows about us. He knows that deep down, what we really want is the same thing as what the marketers discovered 2,000 years later. 
that we want lives full of joy, acceptance, love, friendship, community, companionship, ecstasy, desire, and we want it to last forever. Deep down, you know what we want? Everlasting life. But so many of us every single day have chosen the right destiny and the wrong vehicle. And in this moment, Jesus gives us the opportunity to reevaluate everything. Because here's the beauty. What Jesus wants for you is the same thing you want deep down. Jesus wants you to have everlasting life. And in this passage of scripture, he teaches us the secret that it's not just what he wants now, it's what he's always wanted. The Bible says that our lives as humans began in a place with perfect love, perfect freedom, perfect community, perfect safety, perfect ecstasy, perfect joy, and that our lives were designed to last forever. The reason we want it, get this, is because we were designed to want that. We were designed to want that for ourselves, and we're designed to want that for those that we love. And Jesus says the reason that he came isn't just to teach you how to be moral, because religion can do that. It's not just to teach you how to be successful because capitalism can do that. It's not just to teach you how to be impressive because popularity can do that. Jesus said, I've come to teach you how to be immortal because only Jesus can do that. That's the intention of Jesus. That's the message of the gospel. And so today we're discovering what Jesus has been saying all along, that real life is found in Jesus. And it lasts forever. There's two questions that will determine your life, whether you ask them or not. Two questions that will matter seismically, no matter which career you have or partner you marry or vacation you choose. Two questions that will determine your destiny. Number one, have you received eternal life from Jesus? And number two, what are you doing that will last forever? forever. In our moments left, I want to unpack a few things that Jesus teaches. This, this life sounds great, and there's a lot of religions in the world that make a claim on how you can get it. How can you know what happens the moment after you breathe this last breath and you enter into whatever's next? There's a lot of places that want to sell you a lot of things that they can benefit more than you can benefit just because they know that when it comes down to it, we want to know what happens next. But Jesus has a simple message. He says this, real life is offered to everyone. Isn't that good? Real life is offered to everyone. We're used to living in a world full of scarcity where if it's good, it's rare. And the more rare it is, the better it is, and the more we want it. And yet Jesus says this real life, this treasure of the kingdom, this getting out of bed every day, knowing that you can live with purpose, living throughout your day, knowing that what you're doing matters, that this is offered to everyone. One of the most unique things I think about this passage is the person who wrote it. I think it's important to remember that the Bible is a true story written to real people to tell the real story of how God wants to bring his people back to himself. And the person who wrote these words was a guy by the name of Matthew. And Matthew was an unlikely disciple, to say the least. In fact, there were a lot of people who got really ticked off that Jesus, the promised Jewish Messiah, would choose a man like Matthew. Let me tell you why. 
See, the Jews were living, holding on to everything they could cling to, waiting for their Messiah, and they were clinging to the promise of Israel. They worshiped God based in the temple, and they wanted to see their vision of a Messiah as someone who would come along and throw out the Roman government who were occupying their land at this time so that they could then live in what they saw as a happy life and future. And Matthew was two things. He was a Jewish guy, but he was also a tax collector for the occupying Roman government. When I was growing up, I used to watch that movie, Robin Hood. Anybody? It's great. Go Disney Plus it. Thank you. Yes. There's a character named the Sheriff of Nottingham, and everybody hates him because he's like one of the people, but he turned for the wrong side. He's a traitor. And so many people saw Matthew as a traitor to their people and to their promise. How did this traitor, who a Jewish Messiah should punish and consider an enemy, how did he come to be the one who wrote Jesus' story of his vision of the kingdom? I'm so glad that Matthew wrote his own story in chapter 9, verses 9 through 13. Let me read it to you quickly. Matthew writes this. As Jesus went on from there, he saw a man named Matthew sitting at the tax collector's booth. What I love here is that Jesus went straight to the scene of the crime. Matthew never cleaned himself to come to Jesus. Jesus is the one who came to him. He's sitting in the place of his rebellion and betrayal. And Jesus walked up with a simple invitation. Hey, buddy, you better get your life right. Start following some rules. Got a couple of Scientology studies to sell you. I've got some Buddhist enlightenment to offer you. No. See, Jesus didn't come to offer a system. He came to offer his person. And Jesus made a simple statement that he makes to you and me today. He said, follow me. And maybe just as miraculous, maybe Matthew had had a a taste of what he thought this life could offer and it had grown stale. Maybe Matthew had heard the stories about a man who was turning the world upside down, who could heal the sick and give sight to the blind. Maybe there was something stirring in him already. And when Jesus said, follow me, do you know what Matthew did? He followed him. You know what a lot of us do? Like if we were to put ourselves in this story, we might be sitting there in our place of rebellion. And when Jesus comes up to us, we see that life's not working. We see that things are not working out the way we thought they would. We see that I got everything I thought I wanted and it still wasn't enough. And Jesus comes along and he says, follow me. And we go, actually, I have a better idea, Jesus. Why don't you follow me? Why don't we take your kingdom power and make my thing work? Why don't we take your seismic promises and maybe you could just put your stamp of approval on what I'm already doing because I like what you're offering, but I sure don't want to move. Maybe the miracle in the story is not that Jesus found Matthew. Maybe the real miracle of the story is what happened in Matthew's heart when he said yes. But the opposite of heaven was about to break loose. The Bible says in verse 10, while Jesus was having dinner at Matthew's house, many tax collectors and sinners came and ate with him and his disciples. And when the religious people, the good Jews of the time, the people who spent a lot of time to do the right thing at the right time with the right people and judge those who didn't, when they saw this, they asked his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? 
And on hearing this, Jesus describes something about his kingdom that has been shaking the world ever since. Upon hearing this, Jesus didn't back down. He stepped up. He said, it's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. But go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice, for I've not come to call the righteous. I've come to call the sick. And I want you to know today that the kingdom is for everybody. If you've ever felt like you've walked too far or hidden too much or waited too long, I want you to know today, if you have breath in your lungs, God's not finished with you. I want you to know today that real life is yours for the taking from the Savior who came, lived, died, and rose again and says, I've come to provide the way. I don't care how far you think you've run or what you've done or who's given up on you. Because of Jesus, the kingdom is for you. But guess what? That goes for us as well. I don't care how far you think they've run. I don't care what you think they've done. I don't care who you've given up on. The Bible says the kingdom is for them too. What we see is that real life is found in Jesus and real life lasts forever. The second thing I wanna show you is real life from Jesus is given, not earned. Real life is given, not earned. That sounds great, but it's really uncomfortable, isn't it? You know how I know? Have you ever been to the Christmas party and you show up and it's beautiful and the hors d'oeuvres are out and somebody made sausage cheese balls and you're just thanking Jesus because like that's heaven right there. And suddenly someone walks up to you and they go, here, I got you this and you didn't get them anything. It's really uncomfortable when you realize that you're meant to be a receiver of the kingdom of God unless you know the heart of the giver. Unless you know the heart of the giver. I wanna show you what Jesus says. It's something that I still struggle to get deep inside my heart every day if I'm gonna be real. Here's the question. Do you really know how much you matter to God? Do you really know? I mean, I just really. Do you really know how much you matter to God? Man, I struggle with this every single day. I still wake up in the morning still thinking I've got to earn my place somewhere in the kingdom. I mean, I know that Jesus loves me, but somehow I've got to prove to him today that he can still like me. Can I tell you, according to the scriptures, Jesus doesn't just deal with you. Jesus delights in you. He loves your personality. He loves your idiosyncrasies. The things that people tease you about in middle school that made you different, he actually treasures about you. Jesus has a vision for your life that would blow your mind. Do you really know today how much you matter to God? Because if you did, it wouldn't be a surprise to see what he wants to give you. I know what it's like to look for your worth in the eyes of the person you're still trying to impress. I know what it's like to still try to measure up to the standard that keeps raising up. And Jesus says, I've come for you because I love you and my love will never run dry. Hey, can I tell you something that we can all clap about real loud? Get ready, get ready, get ready. Right now from Stone Creek Church, we have over 270 students at student camp. Go crazy. That's real. That's not the next gen, that's the now gen. Can I get an amen? Amen. Doesn't that feel fun to say? Use it whenever. (laughs) It was at a student camp where the first time I really began to understand what God thought about me. See, at that moment, I was trusting Jesus 
for my salvation, but I had no clue about how to trust God for my identity. I had, a, I had no clue how to trust God for my sense of worth and purpose. And I remember it was sitting in a student camp like that, a small lyric and a little bitty song said, I'm bought at a price, I'm not my own. And I just remember thinking, if I'm bought at a price, then I must be so much more valuable than I could have ever known. And if you ever, ever, ever want to know the lavish love of God, don't look to yourself, look to the cross. Look what Jesus paid so that he could come for you. Look what Jesus endured. Look at the price he paid on your behalf so he can come and offer you the riches of the kingdom. I really want you to think about it. When is the last time you realized how much you matter to God? In the New Testament, Paul said it takes prayer to see that. And that's my prayer for you. The Bible says, fear not, little flock, because it's your father's good pleasure. It's your father's good pleasure. It's your father's good pleasure. Like, this is what he wants to do today. It's your father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. You know, there's so many times I hear this message that, like, I'm one of God's, like, friends or maybe even, like, a refugee. Like, there's a place he'll keep me safe. He doesn't want to deal with me. The Bible says it's the Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom, the best of what he has to offer. That brings us to our last point. Real life isn't just about changing what you do. Real life is about changing what you want. Man, I minister to a lot of people over the years. Hey, Aaron, how can I make God make my thing work? I don't think it will. Hey, God... How can I use God's power to get my way? I don't think you can. Hey, Aaron, how can I get God to do my will? I think you'd be miserable if he did. Because the key to life is not about changing what you do. Real life is about changing what you want. I want to tell you a story about a friend of mine named Dr. Brenda. She was serving in the Gainesville area where I grew up as an internal medicine doctor. I don't know if I said that right, but she did a lot of good and she made a lot of money. And she met this guy named Dr. Richard and they got married. Kind of later in life, they both had kids. And it wasn't long after that, they heard a simple message like this in a simple moment like this. And they heard the call to follow Jesus and they said yes and it changed everything. And it started small. How do you change what you want you begin to taste something better. And they started with a little taste. They started to hear the scriptures about what Jesus says about this life. I mean, it's one thing to hear it once a week on a Sunday, and I'm so glad that you're here, but what happens if the first thing you do tomorrow is to go hear again from Jesus, his vision of the kingdom for your life? And what if you get in a small group like Mike was talking about, and you're surrounded by people who have a vision of the kingdom, and when you forget, they remind you. And then what happens if you do something bold, like step into serving in a brand new way? And that's what Dr. Brendan and Dr. Richard did. They started going on mission trips. You know what they started to see? There's a whole broken kingdom out there. What is the kingdom of God really? It's when Jesus gets his way every day all the time. And you know what happens in the kingdom of God? Orphans find homes. And the sick are made well. And the hungry have more than enough. That's what happens in the kingdom of God. And Dr. Brenda and Dr. Richard went to a place called Uganda and they found a place of need. 
and they saw hungry kids and they saw sick kids and they saw people who needed love and they said, I think we can do something about this. You know, when Jesus said, let the kingdom of God come on earth as it is in heaven, maybe he meant it. And we just happened to be able to step into this and they came back and they sold these beautiful lake houses and they went and bought a piece of property in Uganda. Some of you are like, you just lost me. That's my nightmare. I was sharing Christ with a lady in Portland a few years ago and I said, what keeps you from saying yes to Jesus all the way right now? And she said, I'm afraid God will call me to Africa. And I was thinking about Dr. Richard and Dr. Brendan thinking, it may not be as bad as you think. And they began their ministry and they started a little home and a little area and it got bigger, a school, a clinic, an orphan's home called the Village of Eden. It's there today. And a little taste of the kingdom is what they saw. And I'm telling you, just because you're living for the kingdom doesn't mean life will be easy. About a year after starting that ministry, they came back to have a banquet and a fundraising dinner. And if you ever get to fundraise for them, like give them tons of money because they're doing a great work. And just a few days before that fundraising dinner, Dr. Richard got sick. He started running a fever. Something was off. Finally, they got him to the doctor and found that he was in advanced stages of a rare form of malaria. And in moments, he was in the kingdom. And Dr. Brenda had a choice. I was doing what I thought you wanted. I'm brokenhearted. I'm gonna give up and go try things my way. That's not what she said. She said, I know two things to be true. Number one, I'm gonna see him again. And number two, our work isn't finished yet. And she went back. And a couple years ago, I got to go visit in Uganda. And you know what I saw? I saw orphans finding a home. I saw the sick finding healing. I saw the hungry finding more than enough. You know what I saw? I saw the kingdom of God. And when you're immersed in the vision of the kingdom, you know what stops mattering about everything else. You know what I think sometimes our problem is? It's not that we have too much. It's that our vision is too small. What are you doing today that will last forever? For some of us, that means selling the lives we're in right now to pursue something else. Some of us, it means investing the lives we're in right now for a bigger story. It means giving the best of yourself at work in the name of Jesus. It means inviting friends and neighbors to hear gospel stories. It means surrounding yourself so that you never lose sight of the kingdom of God. But for some of you in this room right now, it might just be to say yes to Jesus for the first time. And if that's you, I wanna give you the chance. Just to help us reflect, if you feel comfortable, would you bow your head and close your eyes for a moment? As Jesus is with us, he says he came to be God with us. I'm praying that he'd be speaking to your heart right now. I wanna take you back to that first story about the man with everything who in a moment faced what's next. That moment will come for you. It's either a source of great anxiety or everlasting purpose. I wonder today, do you know what happens when you step into eternity? Maybe today for the first time, you wanna say yes to Jesus. The Bible says the gospel is beautiful as it is simple. There is a God and he is good. 
But there is a problem. It is sin. There is a hope. And he is Jesus. And there is a decision to follow him. And if today you want to follow him, I'm going to lead you in a prayer. The Bible says these aren't magic words. But if you mean it with your heart, it can change things forever.